0: Animal agriculture stands alone. No other sector is so important to climate change, and yet so under-discussed by politicians and media.
1: About a third of planet warming emissions come from our food systems, and meat and dairy production is by far the biggest offender.
0: In this six-part mini-series, we take a closer look at how meat shapes our society, our climate, and even our geopolitics. We explore stories from around the world, from a farmer's revolt in the Netherlands, to the giant hog farms of North Carolina, to cattle laundering in the Amazon rainforest. From the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I'm Hewan Park.
2: And I'm Noah Gordon. And this is Barbecue Earth. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Last October, when the Pentagon released its national defense strategy, scholars and policy wonks poured over the document for signs of the long-term thinking behind the Biden administration's day-to-day decisions. And one thing emerged quite clearly, that the White House sees Beijing as its most consequential strategic competitor. China is what is described as a pacing challenge, a challenge not just in the immediate term, but also a growing one in the medium and longer term. But as we know, beyond China, the United States faces a range of other pressing challenges, not least with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but also from North Korea, from the Middle East, and from many other areas around the world. How does the White House rank and prioritize these challenges? How does it adapt to change? My guest today is one of the Biden administration's senior most policymakers who was instrumental in the drafting of the National Defense Strategy. Colin Carl is the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. He has in the past served as a deputy assistant to President Barack Obama, and he was also Vice President Joe Biden's National Security Advisor. Last but not least for this audience, he was also an editor of FP's shadow government blog, during the Trump administration as always fp subscribers get to send in their questions which i sometimes ask on their behalf if you'd like to do that too subscribe now use the code fp live for a discount you can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to slash live for now here is Colin Carl Colin Carl welcome to fp live It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So I have to start with the most recent news, the leaked DOD documents. When did it first come to your attention? Well, I think we've uh, first had word of
1: the unauthorized disclosures on April 6th. And uh, ever since then, uh, it's been all hands on deck. It's been a uh, 24-7 exercise to really understand the scope and scale of what happened and what we can do to make sure
2: it doesn't happen again. And if you were to assess how damaging the leaks are uh, across a range of issues, I mean, the war in Ukraine, but also more broadly, how would you assess that damage? Well, I mean,
1: for obvious reasons, not the least of which there's an ongoing investigation, I'm not going to comment on the veracity uh, or validity of the documents, I will say. Uh, you know, any disclosure of material purporting to be uh, top secret in nature uh, is a significant challenge uh, for our uh, national security, uh, which is why we're taking it so seriously.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, there are a couple of things that have emerged, and you know, I don't want you to comment necessarily if you can't on the veracity of the leaks. But you know, the suggestion, for example, that Ukraine's air defense system might soon collapse, or the notion that The Pentagon is actually more pessimistic about Ukraine's chances in the war than it has been publicly. Anything you'd like to say on those? Yeah, again, I won't speak to the documents themselves uh, and what they
1: purport to uh, conclude. I will say this, though, that air defense has been a very top priority uh, for us uh, uh, for the entire war. Uh, But, uh, you know, ever since um, the fall and winter, uh, we have really been surging uh, air defense capabilities to Ukraine uh, to include uh, a U.S. Patriot system alongside one uh, that Germany is providing. We've uh, contributed NASAM's uh, systems, um, uh, other uh, uh, short, medium, and and long-range air defense and missile defense uh, systems. We're doing everything we can uh, to both make sure that Ukraine's Soviet legacy uh, air defense systems remain viable and that Western uh, systems arrive so that uh, Ukraine can stay in the fight. And I'm confident that we and our allies uh, will uh, be able to do that. In fact, uh, this week, and just a couple of days, uh, Secretary Austin, will convene yet another uh, Ukraine defense contact group meeting with 50 some odd countries at Ramstein Air Base in Germany. And I expect air defense to be
2: a top priority there, too. Hmm. I'll come to that in a second as well. But, you know, Politico reported over the weekend about a mood of real anger at the Pentagon. One official quoted said they were sick to my stomach from the betrayal. Um, what's your sense of any changes being made to clearance structures uh, so we don't have another Jack Shara pop up?
1: Well, let's be clear. What happened uh, was a criminal act. Uh, The secretary has been uh, clear about that. Uh, People who have security clearances uh, have an obligation uh, to protect that information. Uh, You should only have access to information that you have a need to know about, and uh, you should never disclose that information publicly. So uh, what happened uh, is a criminal act. That's why there's a criminal investigation underway that the Department of Justice uh, is leading. You know, we already have a lot of uh, procedures in place uh, dating back to previous leaks, uh, like the Snowden incident. And so one question really is, were all the procedures that are already in place followed in this instance? If not, why not? And what can be done uh, to make sure uh, things are buttoned up? But then what additional vulnerabilities have come to light as a consequence of this incident? And how can we get after closing those vulnerabilities? And, you know, the Secretary of Defense has been meeting on this issue with his senior leadership uh, multiple times a day uh, since uh, the documents uh, started to appear online. And uh, he has asked his senior leadership to give him concrete proposals in the very near term to make uh, things safer and reduce vulnerabilities. And I think you should
2: expect to see some of that in the coming days. And That's heartening to hear. Now, you mentioned it's sort of an all hands on deck uh, atmosphere at the Pentagon right now. Are there any strategic changes that are being put in place because of anything that's been leaked, whether or not you can verify uh, any of those leaks?
1: i'm not going to go into too much detail uh, because i don't want to tip our hand on things but we have uh, reduced uh, the circulation of certain types of documents during this period and we'll do a comprehensive uh, review uh, to make sure that only people who have a need to know actually have access to the types of
2: documents we're talking about got it okay so i'll turn away from the leaks now and i want to take us through a range of topics one by one but i thought since we were already on ukraine uh, we'd go there first. Now, there's little question that the Biden administration has done more than anyone else in material terms to keep Ukraine in the fight. But there's a line of criticism that argues that the White House policy is essentially one of incrementalism. And you could say the same of other countries too, but broadly, you know, the White House often says no to certain kinds of weapons requests And then a few months later, it goes ahead and sends those weapons in. And I get that needs and demands change. But with the forthcoming spring offensive, how do you see this moment? Is it a moment to go all in, as it were? Why hold off on more attackums, for example?
1: Yeah, I'll just say that, you know, this is it's kind of a strange argument to me. So the Biden administration has contributed more than thirty five billion dollars of security assistance Uh, to Ukraine in a little more than a year, Uh, that is an extraordinary amount of security assistance. And the mere fact that we could move that bureaucratically and logistically is a miracle. But the reality was, we didn't have $35 billion the day that Russia invaded. In the first six weeks of the war, we had a few billion dollars. And so you have to prioritize. You don't have unlimited uh, amounts of money. The taxpayers uh, provide this money. We have to be good stewards of it. So at every stage, as Congress has provided us resources, we have prioritized what Ukraine needed most in that moment. So in the beginning of the war, the priority was understandably on anti-tank systems like Javelin and uh, manned portable air defense uh, systems and artillery uh, and ammunition for Soviet legacy equipment and keeping their Soviet legacy air defense equipment uh, in, in, in good shape. As the conflict shifted to the east, we shifted towards transitioning them away from Soviet legacy artillery to NATO standard artillery systems. So we started to send them the howitzers, the 155 millimeter guns, as well as uh, the HIMAR systems that have uh, you know received uh, so much attention. And what that allowed them to do was to hold the line in the east and then make a breakthrough in the northeast in Kharkiv and also uh, down south in Kherson. In As we transitioned into winter and we knew that the the conflict was going to transition into a slog, we we made two priorities. One was to bolster uh, Western air defense systems. I already mentioned the Patriot systems, but also to make sure that they had sufficient artillery and that we were uh, providing them the armored and mechanized systems that we knew they would need and would need to be trained on uh, for the upcoming spring and summer offensive. So uh, we are all in. Uh, We have trained thousands of Ukrainians on how to use systems like the Bradley's and the Stryker vehicles, as well as the Leopard tanks and the Challenger tanks and others uh, that are uh, have flown, you know, flowed into Ukraine. And I think, you know, if the, the Russians supposedly started their offensive back in January, if you actually look at a map. Uh, You can measure their progress in very small increments, sometimes in blocks in places like uh, Bakhmut. And they have suffered horrendously uh, for those gains. I think we're putting the Ukrainians in a position where uh, once the counteroffensive launches, um, I think they have uh, a good chance of changing that kind of
2: dynamic uh, on the front lines. You know, and in a sense, there's some, there was a New York Times piece about this recently uh, about how in a sense, the the leaks have validated some of Ukraine's concerns that they've been airing out in the public, that they're not equipped enough. And I get everything you're saying. But uh, from what I'm hearing, is it just that the restrictions are Congress and funding? Otherwise, you'd be trying to give Ukraine a lot more? Well, I mean, I, as I said, Ravi, at every point,
1: what we've tried to do is figure out what does Ukraine need right now? And we uh, do that in consultation with uh, the Ukrainians, of course, and their three top priorities are our three top priorities, air defense, artillery and mechanized and armored uh, forces and everything that's needed to maintain and sustain uh, those uh, those vehicles. So that is what we've been uh, focused on. Um, We we have obviously had an extraordinary amount of money uh, that Congress has uh, given us uh, to uh, provide security assistance uh, to the Ukrainians. But it's not unlimited. So every single time we have to make a decision, one has to ask the question, you know, was it more important to provide a patriot system on day one of the war, knowing that it wouldn't arrive for months because of the training and the time it would take or to use that same money because there's a zero-sum relationship to provide them Stinger manned portable air defense systems. Well, the answer is obvious. You needed to flow them the, uh, the Stinger missiles. And right now, uh, a good example is the, the question about F-16s. You know, we have about $3 billion left in presidential drawdown authority. We could spend all of that money on F-16s and those aircraft would arrive about a year and a half from now and they would be you know, something the Ukrainians would welcome, but they would be completely irrelevant to the spring and summer offensive. So if you have to ha- you prioritize that $3 billion, you're going to spend it on air defense, artillery and the mechanized uh, forces that they actually need to be successful in the spring and summer. And so we have to make those hard choices each uh, and every day. And I will say as a general matter, we have not held things back. It's when things have appeared, have basically been
2: dictated by how things have changed on the ground in Ukraine. I hear you about the tough choices and, you know, the the constraints of funding. And given that we're talking about that, how do you feel about the road ahead in America, given that at least, you know, one or two Republican candidates or would-be candidates for president have said that America should focus more on China instead of Ukraine. Uh, There are also polls that suggest that in the Republican uh, sort of base, at least there's less appetite or declining appetite for for supporting Ukraine. If you game that out longer term, it could be that it gets harder and harder to raise additional funding for Ukraine. Given that reality, how are you thinking about the constraints changing uh, in this dynamic? Well, look, as I
1: said, uh, you know, Congress and ultimately the American taxpayer has been extraordinarily uh, generous in providing security assistance to Ukraine, but it's not charity. The free world has a stake in the outcome uh, in Ukraine. Obviously, for the Ukrainians, it's existential, but for the broader international community, there is a test, and that is do we want to live in a world that is governed by the rule of law or the law of the jungle where large countries can swallow their smaller neighbors and the world just moves on? And I think if we don't assist the Ukrainians in beating back Russia's aggression, you're likely to see Russia do this again. It could do it somewhere else in the former Soviet space or against NATO. Or you could see other would-be aggressors in other parts of the world draw the lesson that the international community will not stand up to smaller besieged democracies as their larger authoritarian adversaries go on the march. So I think that there remains a bipartisan uh, consensus that the United States has a compelling national interest in assisting Ukraine. I do hear the same voices that you've heard. I think they Sometimes they are loud, but I think they represent a minority to include uh, on the Republican side. And I think that there is substantial bipartisan support for Ukraine, and I hope that that will be sustained going forward. I will also say, um, you know, a lot of people have predicted for a long time that support would fall off internationally as well, not the least of which uh, in Europe. A lot of people predicted that, you know, through the winter, uh, for example, as gas prices and energy uh, prices went up, that Europe would kind of lose its nerve on Ukraine. It hasn't happened. And in large part, that's because Europe obviously has a strong stake in this conflict and because of the leadership of the United States, not the least of which uh, my boss, Secretary Austin, who is meeting uh, once a month uh, in these Ukraine defense contact groups. I made reference to the meeting this week at Ramstein, but is on the phone on a near dear, uh, daily basis to make sure that the coalition and support of Ukraine around the world remains intact.
2: Under Secretary, how do you think through nuclear escalation? A lot has been written and said about this topic, uh, but a year has gone by. Putin hasn't used nuclear weapons so far, obviously. Has your risk assessment changed over the last year? In other words, as you think about giving Ukraine what it needs today, do you think that Putin is less likely to use to up the ante to a nuclear level because he hasn't so far?
1: Yeah, I think this is another misnomer uh, that uh, we have somehow held back uh, on a large number of things out of concern for escalation. Um, You know, we have expressed our concern about U.S.-provided equipment and material being uh, used uh, to strike targets inside of Russia, but by and large, we have not held things back because of a concern uh, for uh, escalation. After all, uh, if Russia is worried about the consequences of the war uh, for Russia's security, Vladimir Putin can stop the war tomorrow. And that problem is solved. So look, in the exchanges that uh, we've had with Russian officials, they have constantly made the point that Russia's nuclear doctrine has not changed, that they would only use uh, nuclear weapons in the event of an existential threat to the Russian state. We don't think the war poses uh, that threat. But President Biden has also uh, made clear that while we will do everything we can to uh, support Ukraine, um, the United States does not have an interest in directly entering the conflict and seeing the conflict escalate to World War III either. So we will continue to measure what we do against the risks, uh, not only for what's going on in Ukraine, but for the conflict spilling over and having broader uh, implications for U.S. national security. And I I think the American public would expect,
2: expect us to do nothing less. How does the Pentagon think about the potential for a negotiated settlement? So under what conditions and circumstances would or could such talks begin? And and I ask because it's not just the U.S. that has an interest here, but in recent weeks, several countries, uh, Brazil, China, uh, I'm hearing murmurs from India as well, where several you know, world capitals are uh, sort of raising their, their hands and saying, oh, we could help uh, negotiate uh, an end to the conflict. But how does the Pentagon see all of that? Well, look, I, first of all, we're not going to be in the position of imposing uh,
1: a set of terms uh, on the Ukrainians. Uh, they were the ones uh, who were invaded, uh, uh, further invaded. After all, Russia uh, absorbed Crimea back in 2014 and started the war in the Donbass uh, back then, too. So we're not going to tell the Ukrainians, you know, what a peace settlement will look like, what their uh, what their terms or conditions uh, will be. They put forward their own uh, a peace proposal one. Uh, that is grounded in a set of foundations that the vast majority of countries on planet Earth uh, subscribe to. We re- are regularly seeing these U.N. General Assembly uh, resolutions in support of Ukraine get around 140 countries uh, in support of it. So our position has been uh, that when and if uh, uh, Ukraine is ready to sit down and, uh, and negotiate and they uh, have a willing partner on the other side uh, with the Russians, uh, that the Ukrainians are in the best, best position uh, to negotiate from a position of strength. So uh, it, I don't think that negotiations are imminent. I think that uh, you're likely to see fighting for, uh, you know, a number of additional months. Um, I think you're likely to see, uh, you know, quite intense fighting in the coming months um, as, uh, uh, as, you know, both sides uh, jockey for advantage uh, on the battlefield. But in the event that uh, Ukraine's expected counteroffensive proves successful, that that will put them in a better position. Now, at that point, whether uh, the parties pivot to negotiations will ultimately be up to the two sides. Um, But we are not going to impose uh, that outcome on the Ukrainians.
2: So uh, last question on Ukraine. Speaking about the battlefield, what are you expecting or what can you tell us about what to expect from a forthcoming spring offensive on Ukraine's part?
1: Look, I think we all have to be humble about making predictions about uh, the way that the war in Ukraine is going to evolve, uh, because a lot of those predictions uh, have proven false. But the one thing that hasn't proven false is that you shouldn't underestimate the Ukrainians. They've been extraordinarily innovative, creative, resilient, and of course, they're fighting for uh, their very existence. So uh, I think that with a lot of help uh, from the United States and our allies and partners, uh, the Ukrainians have been able to build up Uh, several additional brigades of combat power. Um, I think as the weather turns, Uh, and is more favorable to using the type of armored and mechanized uh, equipment that have been provided to them. I do think the Ukrainians will have opportunities to change the kind of dynamic that you've seen on the front line since the winter, which has kind of been this bakhmutization of the conflict where the two sides have fought over very small slivers of terrain, uh, trading city blocks uh, and small parts of towns and and countryside. But the map is not fundamentally different uh, than it was three or four months uh, ago. And so I think they will be in a position uh, to change that uh, dynamic. Uh, The other thing um, that I think we can be certain of is that regardless of the outcome of the counteroffensive, Russia has already lost. By every measure, Putin's objectives have not been uh, fulfilled and they will not be fulfilled. He wanted to wipe Ukraine off the map and absorb it into a broader Russian empire. That didn't happen. It's not going to happen. A sovereign, independent, democratic Ukraine will survive and endure. There's nothing the Russians uh, can do to change about that. He wanted to invade Ukraine to demonstrate uh, Russian power. Russia is going to emerge from this conflict weaker uh, than it was going in. He wanted to go in and divide the West and weaken NATO. He has generated the exact opposite effect. So I think regardless of the outcome of the spring offensive the one thing that we can say for certain is that Russia's already lost.
2: You are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance so sign up. Use the code FP Live for a discount.
0: Hey FP Live listeners, this is Claudia. I work on some of the podcasts here at FP, and I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like, NPR's Throughline. You can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On each episode, NPR's Throughline takes a story from the news and goes back in time to where it started to answer one important question: How did we get here? If you're interested in hearing more insights behind today's news stories, like what's the Supreme Court's shadow docket or Where's the line between entertainment and reality? You're going to love NPR's Throughline podcast. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. If you're interested in hearing more, you can listen to Throughline from NPR now, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Let's get to China. There's little doubt that. China's actions have contributed to greater fears in the United States about great power competition. Uh, Your administration calls it a pacing challenge. But I have to ask, isn't some of this a self-fulfilling prophecy? In other words, how do you think through policymaking with an eye to not creating an escalatory spiral of sorts? Look, it's something we have to be mindful of. First of all, those two
1: words, pacing challenge, were both chosen intentionally, not pacing threat, pacing challenge. The challenge because uh, China is the only country in the world that has uh, increasingly has the capability, military, technological, uh, economic, diplomatic, uh, to challenge the United States and the intent to do so, to displace the United States as the world's leading power But this isn't some game of, of, you know, king of the hill. Uh, They want to displace the United States because they want to rewrite the rules of the international system in a way that favors the PRC's interests and values, and in particular, the interests and values of the Chinese Communist Party. And a world in which uh, China is the world's leading power and the world is made safe for the CCP would be one where the interests and values of the United States, I think, would be uh, at risk. So that is why they are our pacing challenge. But conflict with China is not imminent or inevitable. So just because they are a challenge does not mean that we should invite a conflict. It would be devastating uh, for everybody involved and create unbelievable collateral damage to the world economy. And it would be a conflict between two nuclear powers. So nobody wants that outcome. Nobody should invite that outcome. But the reality is that the PRC has ambitions to establish a sphere of military and and political influence in the Asia Pacific and abroad that threatens U.S. interests and also those of our allies and partners. And we're going to defend ourselves and our allies and partners. So if the answer is we should do nothing then I think the outcome is that you're likely to see uh, China expand its influence and power in ways that uh, run counter to our interests and those of our allies and partners. On the other hand, you don't want to take actions that overheat and overcrank uh, the situation and spiral. And so what we've been trying to emphasize is that we will be responsible we do not look to unilaterally change the status quo. We don't support others uh, unilaterally changing the status quo. We do not want a conflict with China. In fact, in all of his interactions with President Xi Jinping, President Biden has emphasized the importance of putting guardrails around our competition, emphasizing strategic stability, crisis communications. And you know, Xi Jinping often leaves those meetings saying the right things, but the reality is the PRC is not picking up the phone when we're calling them. When you have crises around a, you know, Speaker of the House visit to Taiwan or the recent transit by the president of Taiwan uh, uh, through uh, the United States, our outreach to the PRC uh, large, is largely ignored. So I think it's incumbent upon both sides to make sure that we do build these uh, guardrails uh, so that we don't have the spiral and self-fulfilling prophecy that you referenced.
2: You just said when you call China, no one picks up the phone. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? So during the Cold War, the US and the Soviet Union. Union had a hotline to defuse crises. so you're saying there is some sort of a mechanism with China, but they're just not responding. Yeah, the problem is not a technological
1: one. Uh, we can We can pick up the phone. Uh, there's a link. Uh, that call can be unclassified, it can be secure. Um, uh, it can happen at a moment's notice in military channels or political challenges. That's not the problem. The problem is political will on the on the other side. And I think a couple of things are are going on here. Uh, First, China has a very centralized system. So Xi Jinping doesn't like to empower his subordinates to have contacts with the United States without his explicit permission. So that kind of slows down uh, uh, connections uh, below the very top and or requires getting permission all the way up to Xi Jinping himself uh, for those contacts to happen. Second, I think that China has just a different theory than the United States and the Soviet Union had during the Cold War. I think coming out of the Berlin crisis, but especially the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a sense uh, in both Moscow and Washington that the two sides had to communicate with one one another to prevent Armageddon, and that whatever differences we had and wherever we were competing in Europe or Asia or the Middle East or across uh, other parts uh, of the developing world, there had to be that link to avoid that competition spiraling into the abyss. I think China has a very different view. They seem to have the view that crisis communications will be an excuse for the United States to create more crises uh, so that we can then manage them. And that if we want to avoid crises, there's a simple solution and that's just to get out of uh, the Western Pacific and to abandon our alliances and partnerships and leave, uh, and leave uh, that part of the world uh, to be an exclusive sphere of influence lorded over by Beijing. And that's just a very that's a theory that's very incompatible with uh, the types of robust crisis communication. So, again, this is an issue that President Biden has raised with uh, Xi Jinping on a number of of occasions. Xi has said that he's committed uh, to improving these types of communications. We just haven't uh, seen it manifested yet.
2: That's a bit worrying. Um, A longer term question here that I think doesn't get asked enough in Washington is where is all of this headed? So you you have this China policy and a defense policy. You describe China as a pacing challenge and one can agree or disagree on the margins, but given how China responds and how it too has its own domestic constraints, where do you see this competition headed? Five, 10, 15 years from now? And what kind of outcome would strike you as a good outcome for Washington? Well, look, I think, you know, at the Department of Defense, our primary job vis a vis the
1: PRC is deterrence. Uh, that is, uh, it's important that the PRC leadership wakes up every single day and says, today is not the day. Today is not the day to uh, launch an invasion across the Taiwan Strait or to uh, challenge U.S. allies in the South China Sea or the East China Sea or to engage in other aggression uh, that uh, could threaten the rules-based international order of the global economy, uh, U.S. interests, the interests of our allies and partners. So again, we do not seek conflict. It's not in our interest, but we will maintain and sustain and grow over time the military capabilities to ensure that China understands uh, that there is no benefit that is worth the cost that would be imposed uh, were they to go down the road of military aggression uh, in that part of the world or, or anywhere else. The good news is I think that our uh, deterrence vis-a-vis the PRC remains uh, robust uh, today and that we are making enormous uh, investments uh, to make sure that that deterrence is strengthened and sustained uh, over time. I mean, the most recent budget uh, that was submitted uh, to uh, Congress is eight hundred and forty two billion dollars. Uh, And that includes massive investments in the capabilities that will determine whether the U.S. deterrent remains uh, viable. So it includes uh, nearly $38 billion uh, to continue modernizing our nuclear triad. It includes nearly $30 billion uh, for missile defense, $11 billion uh, for long-range fires, $33 billion in investments in space architecture, which are key to the American uh, way of war, Uh, more than $13 billion uh, in cyber Uh, And the list goes on and on in terms of the investments we're making in air power in sea power, in undersea power, uh, which is a a very significant area of overmatch uh, for the United States and in the land domain to modernize those forces to be more relevant and more survivable in a Pacific scenario. So I say all of this because uh, our deterrent remains robust today. I do not think the leadership in Beijing doubts that for one moment. And when they look at the military that we were building over time, uh, I think that that uh, deterrent
2: uh, will remain uh, real for years to come. There's a phrase you use there, Under Secretary, uh, today is not the day. And it's similar to another phrase I often hear in discussions about Taiwan, which is to raise the costs, to raise the costs so high that China wouldn't consider attacking Taiwan. But all of this also sounds to me like it's kicking the can down the road. And so, you know, this comes up in many war games, I know, that often show that China could take Taiwan, but you just want to deter it from doing so, even if uh, it could eventually achieve victory. But I guess what this sort of leads me to then ask is, eventually, it seems like China could take Taiwan and all you can do is delay that, right?
1: Actually, I Actually, I don't think that's true. Uh, I mean, th- look, the PRC is going through the most breathtaking military modernization any country has gone through uh, since the 1930s, really uh, and, uh, certainly in the post-World War II, uh, era. And in many respects, the PRC has seen the United States as their pacing challenge, uh, probably since the 1990s from the Gulf War, and then the incident with the uh, Chinese embassy in Belgrade during, uh, uh, the war in the, in the, in the Balkans at the end of the 1990s. And they have invested massively in trying to hold at risk the U.S. Joint Force uh, in space, in cyberspace, uh, our bases uh, in the uh, in the Indo-Pacific, our aircraft carriers—you you name it—they have uh, invested in trying to hold the Joint Force at risk. The reality, though, is that our deterrent right now is real. Uh, I do not think that ch- that the Chinese leadership uh, believes that their military is capable of taking on the United States right now. The question is, over time, will that calculus change? And so, yes, the time is sliding forward, but we are also moving forward. And the investments that we've made in the three budgets since uh, President Biden uh, came into office under the stewardship of Secretary Austin are precisely to build that capability so that even as China's capability grows, ours is pacing to that challenge. And therefore, the day is never the day. So you're right to some degree that we're just sliding things in time. But we also did that uh, during the Cold War for four or five decades. Uh, So there is the capability to maintain deterrence over time and then over time build increasing guardrails for stability such that uh, you're not worrying on any given day that the you know the other side is going to commit aggression. They could pull the two sides into conflict.
2: Hmm. I have to ask, uh, why is Taiwan such an important defense priority? Uh, and I ask because surely this isn't just about democracy, because if it was, Washington would care more about democracy and so in some of the other parts of the world as well, whether it's India or Israel or any number of other troubled uh, democracies. So you know in defense terms for you at the pentagon what is it exactly well i'll say that this it's not taiwan is not a defense
1: priority per se it is a us national security priority uh, uh of which the defense priority is nested under that and it's not something that the biden administration uh, imposed as a priority uh on uh, on on the united states it's something that there's been bipartisan support for going back to uh the taiwan relations act so under the Taiwan Relations Act, there is a bipartisan agreement that it's in the U.S. national interest to ensure that Taiwan has uh, the uh, ability to defend itself and that the United States maintains the capacity to prevent a uh, forced, uh, forced change in the status quo across uh, the Taiwan uh, Strait. Now, just to make clear, our policy has not changed our one china policy has not changed we don't support uh, a unilateral move by either side to change the status quo we don't support forced reunification by beijing and we don't support independence uh, uh, by uh, by taiwan but the reason that taiwan matters is not just because of the fact that the island could be used as a platform for the prc to further project military power uh, deeper in uh, to uh, into the pacific But also because Taiwan is a vibrant democracy of 29 uh, million people, because Taiwan is the leading producer of the most advanced uh, microelectronics uh, in the world. Uh, And Taiwan, as as an economic entity, matters an extraordinary amount. Uh, to the global economy. A war across the Taiwan Strait is not just something that would impact American lives and American prosperity. It would impact the lives and prosperity of people all around the world. So no one has an interest in a war breaking out across uh, the Taiwan Strait. And I think our you know, national defense
2: uh, strategy uh, recognizes that reality. So um, let's get to the the broader national defense strategy, the Uh, document that your administration came out with last October publicly. It's been a few months now. There have been a fair number of assessments out uh, on it already. What's the area that you think uh, critics misunderstand about the NDS?
1: Well, that I, I think actually one of the critiques that I've heard is that the concept of integrated deterrence, which is really a cornerstone of the uh, NDS, is somehow passing the buck from the military to other parts of uh, the U.S. government. And nothing could be further from the truth. So obviously, we're making enormous investments in our military. We have to be able to deter military conflict with uh, the uh, might and capability of the U.S. joint force. But what the concept of integrated deterrence really means is that as we do that, we need to make sure that we are folding in new technologies and domains like cyber and outer space that will increasingly define the future of warfare. We also have to fold in our allies and partners because one of the asymmetric advantages that the United States has, whether it's in the Indo-Pacific or Europe or anywhere else is the strength of our alliance and partnership network. So of course, as we try to deter aggression, we have to integrate our allies and partners into that equation. And yes, we have to integrate other instruments of US power into that equation too. That means our diplomacy, it means our intelligence and it means our economic statecraft. And if that sounds weak and wimpy, Uh, I think people aren't drawing the right lessons from the conflict in Ukraine. Yes, the provision of enormous amounts of security assistance to Ukraine has imposed tremendous cost on Russian aggression, but so has diplomatic isolation, so have economic sanctions, so uh, has our use of intelligence in the information space. And I guarantee that if you're sitting in Beijing, you're asking yourself the question, if I go after Taiwan... Will the world react the way they did in Hong Kong or Ukraine? If it's Hong Kong, they'll be able to snuff out and absorb a vibrant democracy into greater China, and the world will kind of yawn and move on. If it's Ukraine, not only do you run the risk of a devastating conflict that leaves you weaker, not stronger, leaves the world more div- more united against you rather than more divided, not only do you face those military realities, you also face the prospects of diplomatic isolation and economic uh, uh, costs, sanctions, export controls, etc. And the big difference between the PRC and Russia is that it is impossible for China to achieve its ambitions for national greatness in the decades to come without being integrated into the world. So, of course, if you were thinking about committing aggression against the Taiwan Strait, the big question is not just is not just the military one. It's will it leave. Uh, China weaker and more isolated politically and economically. So I say all of that because, of course, as we're thinking about deterrence, it needs to be integrated across the various tools of U.S. statecraft, in addition to our allies and partners, all backstopped
2: by the most formidable military in the history of the world. You know, I noticed part of the strategy in the document that was released as well was to rely on alliances. Talk to us a little bit about that, especially in light of the fact that we seem to be entering a new and more multipolar order of sorts. You have the rise of minilateralism, of smaller groups. I mean, obviously, there's the Quad, which the U.S. is part of. uh, But there are other smaller groups that do not include the U.S. You frequently have countries like China stepping up to mediate between, say, Saudi Arabia and Iran. The world seems more fractured in a sense, we often hear uh, the phrase non-alignment or multi-alignment for the first time in decades, I would say. How does alliances fit into the broader strategy? I mean, in the first instance, it's because they're the
1: focal points around which we engage in collective action of any kind to address any global challenge. So obviously, you know, whether it's the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine and the role that NATO and our other alliances have played in rallying uh, support uh, for Ukraine, or whether it's uh, the way our alliance uh, networks are adapting to the challenge posed by the PRC in uh, the Indo-Pacific. So think about how much deeper our cooperation on defense issues has gotten with Japan. From a posture perspective, from the amount of resources that Japan is investing, the types of capabilities uh, they are investing, or look at uh, the recent progress we've made with the Philippines on the EDCA sites uh, and, uh, you know, the other diplomacy that we're doing to enhance our defense uh, relationship with the Philippines. And Secretary Austin has, again, been been a, a leading, played a lead role in all of that with his various trips to the Philippines. He just had his Philippine counterpart uh, here last week for a two plus two alongside Secretary uh, Blinken to strengthen that relationship. Or look to AUKUS, which connects two of our alliances, our bilateral treaty uh, uh, relationship with Australia, to our closest ally uh, in the world, the Brits, and pulls them together uh, to create a uh, conventionally armed nuclear powered uh, submarine that will strengthen deterrence uh, in the Indo Pacific, but also has other components on other high end uh, technologies that will have real and meaningful benefits uh, to warfighters and therefore strengthen deterrence. So, look, our allies. They're our team, they're the team uh, that we go into this competition with. And, you know, I've, I've sometimes said that really, uh, to your point about how much the world is changing, this is not a competition of countries. This is a competition of coalitions. And nobody is able to marshal the size of the coalitions that the United States is. Uh, you know, I, I've mentioned a couple of times the upcoming meeting that Secretary Austin will have at Ramstein. That's 50 countries. That's not just NATO. Those are countries but, but, in but Africa, and the then, Middle East, and, and in I Asia.
2: And I how you define or, or what makes for a coalition? What is the unifying theme uh, that, that creates a coalition against another coalition? And I ask because... Again, it often seems unsatisfying to go the democracy autocracy route, which is very black and white and doesn't really fit many of the countries we're thinking about.
1: Yeah, I think this is another um, misnomer about the policy of the Biden-Harris administration. You know, the, the president is fond of talking about what he calls the free world, which is, you know, a concept that's been around for a while. But I think people misunderstand what that term actually means. I think the inner circle of the free world is the United States and our, and the other advanced liberal democracies of Europe uh, uh, and the Indo-Pacific that are at its core. Um, one ring out are a set of democracies that are partners of the United States. Uh, think of India's participation in the Quad. You referenced the, the, uh, the Quad uh, uh, earlier. And one ring out are countries that may or may not be uh, democracies uh, they may have authoritarian governments, but nevertheless, their security, prosperity, and way of life is highly dependent on a free and open international system. So, the free world is all three rings the advanced liberal democracies that form our core alliances, our liberal part, our, our democratic partners, and countries that may not be democracies that nevertheless depend on a free and open international system. That is our coalition. Now, the membership of that comes in and out. And sometimes the exact coalition is going to be defined on the issue. And not everybody is going to share a U.S. perspective on a given problem. And that's okay. We don't have to say that there's one team and you're going to cooperate. You're either with us or against us on everything. That's not realistic. That's that's never been the way that the world works. It cannot be the way that the world works forward. But if you're asking yourself, what country is capable of bringing forward the most potent team As measured in economic capabilities, military capabilities, diplomatic, heft, the ability to actually galvanize international cooperation around the most important problems we face. It's clear that nobody holds a candle to the United States.
2: Uh, Sure. I'll just point out, you called it a misnomer, but of course, um, President Biden has talked about aligning democracies against autocracies. Um, But I take your point. Um, We're getting many uh, subscriber and viewer questions in from around the world. I know we don't have much time, but there's a a common theme across the questions, and many of them are about China. Uh, John Ball, James Day, um, just to sort of combine their questions, uh, are asking how you see, quote unquote, winning the competition uh, with China. How, how should the DOD measure success? Well, look, for the
1: Department of Defense, winning means uh, maintaining a free and open rules based international system. So it means protecting our interests, protecting the homeland, preventing strategic attack, preventing aggression, uh, uh, especially in parts of the world where our interests are most at stake, uh, such as the Indo-Pacific or, uh, or Europe. So that's what winning looks like, is preventing the really bad outcomes and then fostering the types of cooperation that are required to sustain that deterrence over time and cooperate to disrupt other activities uh, that threaten our interests. That could be violent extremist organizations, which continue to rear uh, their head. It could be uh, cyber criminals. Uh, It could be other challenges. So that's what winning looks like. But of course, we're only... of the equation. A big part of this is investing uh, in ourselves as a country. That's why the Biden administration has uh, worked alongside Congress to make massive investments in science, technology, infrastructure, education, addressing the existential uh, threat posed by climate change, precisely so that we can position the United States across the board to win the future.
2: I have a great question in from Major David Phillips um, from the Air Force. Uh, He says, is the U.S. government and the Biden administration doing enough to communicate with the American people at large about the challenges and threats posed by an increasingly aggressive and assertive China? You know, I think we're communicating a lot. You know, whether it's enough is probably a little
1: bit uh, in the eye of the beholder. You know, if you look at the national security strategy. It identifies uh, China as the most consequential competitor of the United States. If you look at the national defense strategy, which we've been talking about, it identifies the PRC as our pacing challenge. If you look at our investments, whether that be in technology or in infrastructure or even on climate and defense, They are all oriented around competing with China in one way uh, or another and making sure that we're doing that in a way that serves U.S. interests and is consistent with U.S. uh, values. And we've made the case. And the other point is, I just think that there's a strong bipartisan uh, uh, level of support uh, for doing all of those things. You know, There's a lot of polarization in this country. There's a lot of disagreement on a lot of things. But I think there's a real opportunity to continue to marshal our competitive spirit to rise to this challenge and keep that bipartisan support going to provide the resources that it's going to take.
2: Our subscriber Brian Gallagher uh, has a question on an issue I wanted to get to but couldn't, so here we go. Uh, When we think of a conflict with China, uh, he says, uh, we're at a significant people and manufacturing disadvantage, but more worrying, he says, is that China has a large advantage in raw number of software and AI experts. Uh, how does the Pentagon think through AI competition between the US and China? Do you agree? Are we at a disadvantage? How do we not be at a disadvantage?
1: You know, look, I think sometimes people uh, you know, look at the remarkable rise of China's economy, you know, you know, decades of seven, eight, nine, ten percent uh growth. And uh, their aspirations to, uh, you know, dominate the commanding heights of the technologies that will define the rest of this century, artificial intelligence, quantum, uh, synthetic biology, uh, space, um, and, you know, basically think that somehow the United States is in the rear view mirror uh, in that uh, equation. I think nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I don't really know a lot of Americans who would raise their hand and say, I'll trade places with China. I think history is littered with countries to include great powers that have underestimated the United States. I also think that China's got its own challenges. They have a massive demographic problem. They are rapidly aging. Their population is starting to shrink. And the number of young working age people that can support that aging population is not what it needs to be for sustainable growth rates. They have enormous environmental and resource Challenges Under Xi Jinping, they have consolidated political control even more in it with an iron fist under the CCP. It's not clear whether that is sustainable for the aspirations of the Chinese people over time. They have enormous debt overhang. They have a lot of problems. And it wasn't China that created ChatGPT. Now, to be fair, it wasn't the Pentagon either. <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't count uh, American uh, industry out. I mean, the, the, these I, I joke about ChatGPT, but it's actually maybe an interesting example because there's a debate going on in China right now. Why didn't China? Why didn't a Chinese company create ChatGPT? And at least part of the answer is it's hard to create a large language model that scours the entire Internet to generate uh, solutions to problems if you censor the Internet. So I I actually think that there are enormous investments, especially uh, in the private sector, that will keep us at the bleeding edge. And really, our responsibility here in the Pentagon is to make sure that we can nurture that ecosystem and draw on it uh, as necessary uh, to keep the military edge
2: uh, sharp as well. Uh, China did create TikTok, of course. Um, One last question, uh, Under Secretary uh, on Iran. I have to ask, did the Biden administration miss a step in not trying to get back into it sooner. And I guess more pertinent to your role today, um, how exactly is America deterring Iran? Uh, How do you feel about Iran being closer to a nuclear weapon? I think, look,
1: people can debate uh, whether uh, the administration was too fast or too slow out of the gate in trying to revive uh, negotiations with the Iranians. I'm not going to get into that. Um, I wasn't part of the administration uh, at at the outset. I'm looking at where things are now. And the reality is that the, you know, the JCPOA is essentially on life support, barely. You know, when the JCPOA was in place, uh, Iran's breakout time to create one fissile, uh, one bomb's worth of fissile material would have been about a, about a year. Now it can be measured in, uh, you know, a small number of weeks. Um, and so we're not in a great place. Uh, so uh, President Biden has made clear um, that uh, Iran will not be allowed uh, to acquire a nuclear weapon, Period. He's made clear his preference for a diplomatic uh, solution to that problem, but we have other alternatives available uh, to us. You know I'll give you one uh, just recent example. You know if you look back in January, the United States and Israel conducted the largest military exercise in the history of our relationship with Israel. Um, About 6,000 U.S. service members uh, joined uh, their counterparts in Israel, a U.S. aircraft carrier, live fire exercises that involve something like 180,000 pounds uh, of munitions, uh, a lot of uh, activities in the air, aerial aerial refueling, search and rescue, um, demonstrating a lot of joint capability to defend uh, our interests uh, in uh, the Middle East. I have no doubt uh, that Iran uh, took notice of that. You also saw the recent. Uh, attacks by uh, Iranian-backed groups against our forces in Northeast Syria. And you saw the forceful counter-response by the United States that I think, at least for some period of time, has restored a modicum of deterrence. But but it may not last. And if it doesn't and Iranian-backed groups hit us again, we will be poised to defend ourselves. Uh, And the President and Secretary Austin have made that clear. So deterrence is not something that just exists and then it stops, And then it's gone forever. It's something that exists. You have to nurture, you have to strengthen. And when it erodes, you have to build it back up. And when it collapses, you have to restore it. And so it's an iterative process. And it's one that we're engaged in in Europe, in the Indo-Pacific and in the
2: Middle East. And that was Colin Carl, the US Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Next week, John Kerry. He's President Biden's Special Climate Envoy, He's also a former Secretary of State. You heard Colin Carl say nobody in Beijing is picking up the phone. while well, John Kerry has a direct line to his counterpart in Beijing, and he does pick up the phone. We'll explore whether that connection between America and China could just end up saving the world. Remember, if you want to watch these live... In video, go to farmpolicy.com. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also see what else we have coming up on the show weeks ahead of time. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you soon.